Welcome to Passive Real Estate Investing, the show where busy people like you learn how to build substantial passive income while creating wealth for the long term. And now, here's your host, Marco Santarelli. It's my pleasure to welcome Tom Wheelwright to the show. Tom is a leading tax and wealth expert, a speaker, and a Rich Dad advisor to Robert Kiyosaki, author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Tom is best known for making taxes fun, easy, and understandable, and is the best-selling author of Tax-Free Wealth. He specializes in helping investors permanently reduce taxes, and that's the reason I wanted to bring him on the show today. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, great to be on your show. Well, it's my pleasure to have you. I've been uh, actually looking forward to this episode because taxes are one of those things that nobody likes to think about, nor do they like to pay it. And, you know, it's been said that taxes are the largest single expense. In fact, that's a quote from Robert Kiyosaki. So I think uh, it's timely to have you here on the show in January, and I'm pretty excited to uh, to talk to you. Well, I'm always excited to talk about tax. As, as we were talking beforehand, I said, you know, I am I am first and foremost a tax nerd. I <laughs> I absolutely love tax. I love the tax law. You know, I was actually um, uh, was uh, doing a little research the other day, and uh, I think the Bible has like 800,000 words to it, and the tax code, just the law, no rulings, regulations, anything else, has over two and a half million. Wow. So. It's like, you know, and there, there's this famous quote from Albert Einstein saying the most difficult thing in the world to understand is income tax. And I just like that quote because, it, you know, it kind of makes me feel good about myself. Yeah. But I do recognize that it is something that people, like you say, you know, people don't like. I mean, taxes are a bad word. You know, it's a bad thing. But there's so many opportunities to reduce your taxes that if we can turn it into a good word, then we can we now have just a lot more money to um, to use to invest and build our wealth. You know, we're both very big on education, and I've read your book in 2012 when it came out, your book Tax-Free Wealth. And, and one of the things you say in there is that taxes can make you rich or make you poor. It's your choice. So let's start off by talking about what tax-free wealth is. How do you describe that to people? Well, tax-free wealth is really a function of how, understanding how the tax law works and what it really is. Most people look at the tax laws, and in fact, most tax advisors look at the tax law as this is the government out to get us. And it is completely the opposite. Okay, I, I've been a student of taxes for over 35 years. And what's what's really clear to me is that that you know there's only one line in the tax law that actually raises revenue. There's a, a line that says basically all income's taxable unless we say it isn't. And then there's about 29 pages of charts and tables tells how much to pay on that income. The rest of the tax law, the rest of the two and a half million words, is a an instruction guide on how to reduce your taxes. And once we get that in our minds then all of a sudden, okay, well, if we're looking at this as, if I understand this, I can do something about it, which is different than there's nothing I can do. All of a sudden, we've, we're in control of our life. We're in control of our, our taxes, and no longer does it have to be our single biggest expense. Right. Well, well this segues to your two rules of money. Um, you know, the first is it's your money, not the government's. Right. And, and your second rule is... Uh, uh, the tax law is written primarily to reduce your taxes. Right. And, and here, here's what I think most people don't really recognize. And that is when you look at the tax law, 
it, it's really simply a series of incentives. That's all it is. So, for example, um, you're, you do real estate. So you know that there's, a, and I'm sure we'll be talking about this, there's a bunch of incentives for real estate investors. Well, you just have to look at what's the policy of the government. Okay, I'm, I'm a big fan of looking at government policy. If you really want to understand the policy of any government in any country, look at their tax law, because I guarantee you that that policy is set out in their tax law. So, so I, I'll give you a, an odd example. In Australia, one of their governmental policies is to encourage the birth rate. They want more kids born into the country. And so what do they do? I mean, it's a it's an island, right? I mean, fundamentally, right? They, they're so, so disconnected from the rest of the world, they need to grow their population. Mm -hmm. So they give tax benefits for having more children. Okay? So you're just looking at the policy. What's the policy of your country? What does the, the government want you to do? And if you do that, they're going to give you a tax break. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a fundamental unwritten rule. If you want less of something, you tax it more. If you want more of something, you provide tax breaks or tax it less. Exactly. No, that's exactly right. You know, I have to think, um, when you're talking to people about this stuff, what do you find is the most surprising thing people find about what you're teaching in terms of reducing taxes either permanently or temporarily? Well, I, I, first of all, I think most people just have never thought of it this way. I mean, the context that, that tax-free wealth gives to the tax law is remarkably unique. I, I, I'm actually quite surprised. It, it's, it's not like, I thought when, when I, I wrote the book, I thought, oh, well, there are other tax advisors promoting this out there, and I just haven't met them yet. And what I found was, is no, there aren't. I mean, we this this concept of the tax law being in your favor, if you look if you use it that way, is completely foreign. In fact, most people go, well, it's my obligation to pay tax, and boy, I'm I'm doing something wrong if I avoid taxes. No, you're doing something wrong if you evade taxes. If you evade taxes, you're going to go to prison, and you should, okay, because that's you're 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 not following the law. Yeah. But to avoid taxes, actually. The way you avoid taxes is by following the law. And, you know, people say, well, it's unpatriotic to pay fewer taxes. I actually take the completely opposite approach. I go, well, look, if the government, let's say if I'm supporting my government and the government tells me to do something and I do that, isn't that more patriotic than not doing it? Yep. So whatever I'm doing to follow the tax law and to take advantage of those incentives, it goes back to what you said. You know, the government wants you to do more of something, they're going to tax it less. The, there's just people hate taxes so much that a little tax incentive goes a long ways for the government. And so they get a, they get a big bang for their buck by giving a tax incentive. I, I, I've, I've been fascinated by the Republican um, um, debates and, and, and the different candidates and their positions. Not the Democrats, because Democrats, they get this. Okay, frankly, they get it. Okay, they get what the, the purpose of the tax law, and they get what they're trying, what what the tax law is for. They're not trying to simplify the tax law. You don't see the Democrats saying we're going to go to a flat tax. They're not because they know what it's for. They they understand that this we can use the tax law to facilitate government policies. Right. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying that it should be. I'm just saying it is what it is. So it, it's like Robert always Robert Kiyosaki always says he he goes look. 
if this is the way things work, why not just take advantage of the way things work? Why, why are you fighting it? Just put it into place in your own life. And, you know, I, I look at these, the, the, these candidates who want this flat tax. I'm going, okay, so when you have that flat tax, how are you going to um, get people to follow your policies? Are, are you going to put them in prison if they don't? Yeah. Are you, are you going to penalize them? How are you going to do that? I'm, I'm such a believer that a positive reinforcement is so much better than a negative reinforcement. And a positive reinforcement of lower taxes is a really big positive reinforcement. Yeah, I agree. So I guess that's an argument against a flat tax with no, what I'll call loopholes. In other words, exceptions to incentivize people. Yeah. Can, can we talk about this just for a second here? Yeah. Um, I, 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 the, the, the word loophole is a misnomer. Um, you know, a loophole, when we think about it, is a mistake. In other words, um, I, I'll give you an example of a loophole. Uh, if anybody's ever heard of this idea of a carried interest, which is basically um, the, the big argument right now is the private equity guys and hedge fund guys are using this carried interest rule to convert ordinary income to capital gains. With respect to the private equity guys, it's a loophole. In other words, it was never intended for them, right? But with respect to your industry, real estate, it was absolutely intended that way. Right. So the, this idea of, an, of a real estate developer um, who goes out and builds an apartment building, and what he does is he puts up, he doesn't take, any, doesn't take money up front. What he does instead is he says, look, I will take a reward on the back end should I be successful. And the government says, if you do it that way, we're going to treat that as capital gains at a lower tax rate instead of ordinary income. If you put your, not just your money at risk, but you're putting your time and your efforts at risk, we're going to reward you for that risk by giving you capital gains. That is exactly what that's for. So that's not a loophole. That was intended. That's an intentional consequence. Whereas for the private equity guys, I think that probably was a loophole. So when the, you talk about closing loopholes, we're not talking about getting rid of the intended benefits. We're talking about let's get rid of unintended consequences, which there always are, right? And I'm all for closing loopholes. I just I just want to be clear on what, what we mean by a loophole because to me, if it's an intended consequence, it, it, it's not a loophole. It's it's not a mistake by the government. It's something they actually wanted us to do. Yeah, you're talking about intended incentives to encourage certain behaviors or growth in particular sectors within the economy. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that makes sense. Okay, so let's get down to to some fundamentals here, and, and then just build on top of that. And you know, this topic about taxes, we could spend hours and hours talking about it and have multiple episodes, each one on different subject matter. So we're just going to touch on a few big things here today and, and maybe down the road we can bring you back and have you talk about sure. something you know in more detail. Sure, of course. Okay. So I think most people understand that there are three kinds of income. There's ordinary, portfolio, and my favorite, passive, which you know is the name of our show, Passive Real Estate Investing. So Take a second to just define what those three types of income are and, and if there's a way for investors to take advantage of those. And we'll probably just expand on that as we go. Sure. Um, so think, think of ordinary income as something that you worked for. Okay. That, that's really ordinary income. In other words, it was your effort that created the income. And typically, an ordinary income is going to be taxed at the highest rate. All right. So you're in, you, you run your business. Um, 
I run my accounting firm, okay? My accounting firm produces ordinary income, okay? It's as a result of my efforts and the efforts of my employees, right? So that's ordinary income. Um, it's something I'm actively involved in, all right? That's ordinary income. Then you think of, okay, what's portfolio income? Portfolio income, think of as investment income. This is something that is happening primarily as a function of time as opposed to a function of effort. So, so when you think of portfolio income, uh, you, you tend to think of capital gains. Well, capital gains, why do capital gains happen? They happen over a period of time. I've held an asset for a period of time, and that's capital gains. Okay, Passive income is unique. And, and it's unique. It, first of all, it's unique in that, uh, to my knowledge, we're the only country with this concept of passive income from a tax standpoint. And it actually came about back in 1986 when I was in Washington, D.C. And um, uh, this was actually the 1986 Tax Act would not have happened were it not for this change in the law, which basically said that if you have an investment in a business and you're not actively involved in that business, we're going to treat that income or that loss as passive. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's an active business. The business itself is active. You're just not an active participant in that business. We're going to call that, that passive. So it's not portfolio. In other words, you haven't invested in some kind of a fund or some kind of a stock or something like that. And it's not your own business. It's kind of in between here. And so what happens is, is that passive income, the, the beauty of the passive income is twofold. From an investor standpoint, of course, it means you're not active in it. It means you're not spending a lot of time at it, which is what we all hope for, right? I mean, we could some, I like to call it mailbox money. Mm -hmm. Just shows up in your mailbox, shows up in your bank account. On the other hand, passive losses, um, and this is the real reason this law was created, passive losses, you don't get to use them unless you have passive income. And the biggest contributor to passive losses is real estate. So if you're a real estate investor and you're not actively participating in your real estate and it throws up losses, which by the way, it should if you're, if you're investing. If you're doing it right. If you're doing it right, it's going to throw off tax losses, cash, cash flow positive, um, tax negative, right? Cash flow positive, tax negative. You're going to have a passive loss. So then the, the big question is, so it's great because you're not going to pay tax on your real estate income. Okay. What's not great is, is, but now I can't use it unless I have passive income. So then our question becomes, how do I convert some of my income that is otherwise active into passive income so that I can use those real estate losses? Because what we want to do is, again, it's tax-free wealth, right? It's not tax-reduced wealth. It's tax-free wealth. So what we're trying to do is, is we're trying to get to, to we're, we're, we're wanting to, to, to be strategic about our tax planning in such a way that we don't just not pay income tax on our real estate um, cash flow, we we actually get a tax benefit to offset our other income from our 
from our business or from our job or from our um, in investment, you know, our other investment portfolio. We want to be able to use that loss to offset our other income. And that's where, you know, a good tax strategy comes into play. Yeah. And, and strategy is the key word there, because it's my understanding that you can't take passive income and take your passive deductions and use that against active income, correct? Right. You cannot offset. It's a bucket. Think of it as a bucket. Okay. Uh, and, and, and a really easy way for, for our listeners to, to think about this is everybody knows that capital losses only offset capital gains, right? That's a bucket. Yep. Okay. Um, uh, everybody knows that. I mean, and, and, <laughs> we still see lots and lots of people that have these huge carryovers, right, of capital losses on their Schedule D that carry over every year because they only get to use $3,000 a year, right? Because they don't have capital gains. So one of, the, one of our strategies that we use that we employ is actually to convert ordinary income to capital gain. Because if you got big capital losses, that's an asset you're not taking advantage of. Well, the same thing is true with passive. Passive losses are a bucket. Okay, they go into this bucket and they don't get to be used up except against passive income. So what we're trying to do, we either want to convert the from passive loss to ordinary loss, because ordinary loss we can use it with against anything. Right. Or if we can't do that, we want to create we we want to convert our active income to passive income. Okay, well that's a whole episode in itself because I, I know it that is. that goes down the road of how do I become a professional real estate investor and qualify yep. under you know that particular code of and you know that's working 750 hours a year in that particular business and there's all these other criteria so we'll save that for another day. Well we should but but let me let me kind of give you because there's a there's a there's a thought process a context here that I'd like our listeners to get. And that is that when we talk about real estate professional, because a lot of people have heard that term, what we're doing is we're talking about converting our real estate losses from passive to active. So one thing, one way to do this is to, is to actually convert our losses from being passive losses to active losses. But there's a whole nother way to look at this. And that is, what if we left them as passive losses? And what if all we did was convert some of our income from active income to passive income. So this is kind of the thought process. Just remember that it's a bucket and it doesn't matter. I can go either way. I can either take my passive losses, move them out of that bucket so that they're active losses, or I can take my active income and, and move it into that bucket so that it can still be offset by those losses. So they just need to be in the same bucket. They just have to be in the same bucket. It's very simple. Got it. All right, so the holy grail of tax write-offs, at least as far as I know, is depreciation. True. And, you know, I, I think for a lot of people, and including investors, it's, it's not fully understood. And those who do understand it don't fully appreciate how powerful it is. So talk about depreciation. Most people, I think, listening to this program understand what depreciation is. But why is it so amazing for real estate investors? Well, so so I, I refer to a chapter seven of Tax Free Wealth that's called the magic of depreciation, and that actually came um, came up when I was uh, the very first time I was ever, ever on Robert Kiyosaki's stage, which was, geez, about twelve years ago. Mm -hmm. And he, the very first thing he ever had me do on stage was explain depreciation, and I I got up there and I said, and he was very brave because he didn't he barely knew me at all. And certainly had never seen me speak before and didn't know I had any experience teaching. I happened to have had 20 years experience teaching by then, but he had no idea. Very brave guy. <laughs> and I said, 
you know, depreciation is just a little like magic because you have an asset that's going up in value that you're getting a deduction for. Tell me another asset that's like that. Oil and gas doesn't work that way. Business doesn't work that way. Only real estate, only depreciation, on, and particularly on real estate, works that way. You have an asset that's going up in value, and you're getting a deduction for it. Now, the reason it's more magic in real estate, I think, than it is some other places, is because, you know, you and I were talking earlier about leverage and using debt for real estate and, and why that's so important. Because... Obviously, you can never get the same returns on real estate if you pay cash for it as you can if you use leverage, if, if, if you leverage it and use debt. I mean, to me, the, 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 key to real, the two keys to being a successful real estate investor are, one, using debt, and two, using taxes. Okay, those are the two keys. Well, what's, what's cool about depreciation? So, all right, so we all know that depreciation is basically a deduction for the cost of your investment over a period of time. That's all it is. It's just a deduction for, the, for what you paid for your investment over a period of time. And, um, you know, land doesn't get depreciated um, because it never wears out, but everything else does. The building, the contents, the, the land improvements, the light fixtures, the, the, even the, even the uh, garage, I mean, even the, even the lighting, even the fencing, all of that eventually is going to wear out. So we're going to get some kind of deduction for depreciation. But here's the cool thing about depreciation, and that's leverage. So if you think about it and you say, okay, let's say I've got $100,000 of cash, okay? I could go buy a $100,000 property, right? I bet you've got a few you could sell for $100,000 or, or less. So I go buy this $100,000 property, and I'm going to get depreciation on probably 80% of that. So let's say 20% is land, okay? But I'm going to get an $80,000 depreciation deduction over a period of time. All right, well, that's... That's not bad, but let's say I took that $100,000 and I leveraged it. And so I used, I went to the bank and said, bank, would you lend me $400,000 if I put $100,000 my own money in, in it? And you're going to say yes, right? Mm -hmm. you, you, you got all sorts of banks who will lend 80% loan to value sure. on residential property. So now I go and I go, okay, so now I'm going to buy a $500,000 property. Well, I still only have $100,000 of my own money into it. But the great thing about depreciation is the bank doesn't get it. You get it. So what you've done by borrowing is not only have you leveraged your cash flow, but you've also leveraged your tax deductions. And so when I hear people saying, well, you know, I, I'm still going to have, I'm going to have taxable income. For, I have taxable income for my real estate. I'm going, the, the only way you have taxable income from your real estate because you haven't leveraged it. It's the only way. Because you haven't leveraged it. Either you didn't leverage it now or you're not re-leveraging it. Because real estate is a function, uh, you know, building a real estate portfolio is a function of mass, right? It's a function of how much volume of real estate can I have? And that volume increases my cash flow, but also increases my tax benefits. And so when we talk about tax-free wealth, I mean, the, the reality is that a very serious real estate investor and I, um, people who invest on a regular basis can get to zero tax, even though they've got a huge cash flow. I actually had, um, I, I gotta tell you, I, I had this, I, I met with another CPA just last week. Mm -hmm. 
And she spent, we had 45 minutes together. She spent the entire time arguing with me. And what she was arguing about is she was arguing about real estate. She goes, well, but depreciation, but you're going to recapture it at some time. I'm going to go, why? Well, you're going to sell it. I'm going, why? If I do sell it, why wouldn't I just do a 1031 exchange? Exactly. Right? I mean, well, because you want cash out of it. Well, why would I take cash out on a taxable sale instead of taking it out on a refinance? Why would I do that? Okay. You might want to have, you know, but, but wait a minute, you might want to have, um, you, you might want not want to manage your real estate. Okay. So why don't I just roll it into a Walgreens? I don't have to manage that. Why don't I roll it into something I don't have to manage anymore? Sure. You know, and, and we just, I mean, it was just, I, I, I just going, why are you fighting me on something that is as fundamental? And she has some pretty big clients that are real estate developers. I'm going, why are you f- fighting me on this? You should be asking me, how do I do this for my clients? Not all CPAs are created equal. That's the bottom line. Amen. But you make a major point. You know, real estate is the only asset class where you can come in with as little as 20% down of your own cash, borrow the other 80% and take 100% of the appreciation, 100% of the amortization, 100% of the tax advantages. I mean, you keep everything. Yep. It's, it's, it's very powerful. And the whole thing about a 1031 exchange, actually, that was my next question for you. It's kind of a loaded question, but you know, people will say, if I sell the property, then I have recapture taxes and whatnot. Well, why, why do you need to sell it? Just keep doing a 1031 tax-free exchange into more and more and more real estate. Keep building your portfolio. You can defer your capital gains taxes forever. Well, right. And here's what happens. You, you actually defer them until, until a, a certain point of time when you can't defer anymore. That's when you die, right? And it's going to happen to all of us, um, like it or not. So here's, but here's an interesting phenomenon. When you die, your capital, your recapture goes away. It disappears. Um, the government actually says, okay, if you're dead, we're not going to, we're not going to recapture that tax anymore. That's our gift to you for dying. Okay. So thank you. Thank you for dying. Here's your thank you. Here's your thank you. We no longer have to pay you social security. We no longer have to provide you services. Instead, as, as our gift to you for coming off of the government rolls, we're going to give you this tax benefit. I mean, I know I'm being a little facetious about that, but it's the reality is, is that we can defer until we make it permanent through death. Yeah. And so we can defer forever. The reality, if we wanted to, we could defer it and then our kids could defer it and then their kids could defer it. And you literally, if, if you chose not to own, you know, own the property when you die and you chose to get it over to your kids, they can defer it and they can defer it forever and ever. Yeah. It's, it, it, the 1031 exchange is powerful. And then with proper estate planning, it, oh, yes. you know, it, it's, it's huge. Now, isn't there an exception to that? Isn't there a cap at $11 million? Um, the, the, the cap is right. If you keep it, but here's the thing you can, so good tax planning. So let's talk about that just for a second. If we can, sure. good tax planning includes both income tax planning and estate tax planning at the same time. Okay. What it drives me crazy when I see income tax planning that doesn't think about the estate planning 
or estate tax planning that doesn't include the income tax consequences. So we have to marry these two. They're, they're very much, they're intricately um, connected, and more now than they, they were before we had this $11 million exclusion. With this $11 million exclusion, what that means is, is that if our estate doesn't rise above $11 million and is never going to rise above $11 million, we don't want to transfer it out of our estate because we want that step up in basis. However, to the extent it's more than $11 million, we want to transfer the rest of it out of our estate because the estate tax is way bigger than the income tax, sure. than the capital gains tax. And so we want to get it out of our estate and let our, let's, let's let our kids deal with that tax down the road. And if they want to continue to defer, that's great. If they want to pay the tax and just cash out, that's okay too. Going back to depreciation for a sec, Tom, um, you know, depreciation is on a 27 and a half year schedule. And then after that, the, the depreciation is, is, is gone unless you do something to the property. What do you have a strategy or what do you recommend investors do after yeah. 27 and a half years to reset the clock? Totally. Refinance? Totally. Buy more property. Buy more property. Well, so uh, first of all, 27 and a half years, you're talking about residential property. Okay. Yeah. Commercials 39. Okay. Just, just so we're clear. I always, I think investors should be on a constant evaluation of their property and acquisition because here's what's going on. If, if you've held that property for 27 and a half years, you've got a bunch of equity in there. And you can not only, can you then, you know, use that, you can, don't just buy another property, but leverage that equity. So let's say that you pay, because at the same time, like you say, you get the depreciation, but you're also amortizing your loan down, right? So over that tw same, probably same 27 and a half years, same, same period of time. So at this point, now you got a bunch of equity in there. Why don't you go leverage that equity again and buy more property? Yeah. So that's kind of the key. The key it, it's a bit of a, you know, you kind of become a bit of an investment addict um, where you're kind of like, it. it <laughs> I don't like, it's probably not the right word to use, but it kind of is Ponzi. I mean, you're taking and taking that money and investing it more, right? I mean, you're continuing to build and grow and, and, and build more volume. That's actually one of the arguments I was having with the CPA. So, well, you, then you have to keep buying more real estate. I'm going, yes. And what's wrong with that? Why <laughs> wouldn't you want to keep buying more real estate? Exactly. Yeah. And to your point, you know, as, as a property appreciates and you gain more equity over time, I kind of laugh at some investors that talk about their, quote, return on equity, close quote. You know, you can do a math calculation on that, but the fact is, is there is no return on equity. It's dormant or dead equity. It's not doing anything for you. So you have to redeploy that into more real estate in order to convert that equity into another income producing asset. Now you actually have a return. It's called cash flow and you can measure that. Right. So what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And I think that's the way to do it is just keep building your portfolio. Well, and the, and the more the more real estate you have, of course, the lower your equity is compared to your total real estate, and so the higher that return on equity is. So that that's how you get, keep your return on equity keep going up and up and up is by continuing to refinance and and buy more property, yeah, converting it into income producing assets. That's right. Yep, that's right. Yeah. So just on a tangent here, you know, from a tax perspective. What's the difference between flipping and holding property? Obviously, we're not promoting <laughs> flipping. You know, that to me is a transactional business. It's exactly that. It's a business and it's a transaction. It doesn't produce checks in the mail every month. 
But from a tax perspective, can you just kind of summarize what the difference is for those people listening that are saying, oh, I need to quote unquote invest in real estate. I'm going to start flipping. Well, no, that's not investing. At least not, it's not to me. It's not. That's a business. So that's ordinary income and that's taxed twice as much, at least twice as much as buy and hold. There's nothing wrong. I, I don't have any objection to people flipping properties as long as they recognize that it's not investing. It's a business and you treat it as for what it is. It's a business. Yep. Okay. So I, um, uh, 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 so everybody knows Dave Ramsey is, and I was on a radio show with him not too long ago and uh, off offline, we were talking about, you know, how he, you know, he only uses cash, right? He invests in real estate, but he does cash investing. And I'm trying to understand why is that? Well, because he got caught flipping with using leverage to flip. Well, using leverage to flip is a highly risky thing to do. Yeah. Using leverage to buy and hold is a very low risk thing mm -hmm. to do. As long as, and you've said it a number of times, and thank you for saying it, as long as you have strong cash flow. The reason people got in so much trouble in 2007, 8, 9 is because they had bought real estate betting on the market going up. That's a, that's called speculation. That's what that is. That's speculation mm -hmm. and speculating. You know what? I'm sorry, but you speculate, you kind of get what you deserve. It's a bit like bu buying a lottery ticket, right? I mean, your chances of winning are the same whether you buy the lottery ticket or not. Right. Right. So the, that's the challenge with that. So flipping from a tax standpoint, you're paying twice the tax rate. I mean, that's basically what it is. You're going to pay twice as much tax on the same income from flipping as you do from buy and hold. And, and that's assuming that you pay tax at all. So the reality is what normally happens with a, a good real estate investor, like we said, will never pay tax on their cash flow or their capital gains, whereas a flipper will pay as much as 40 to 50% on their income from, from selling, you know, from flipping their properties. It's a big, big difference. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, there's nothing wrong with flipping. It's just not what I consider investing. If you're going to flip and make ten or twenty or $30,000 on a flip, take that, use it as a down payment, and buy some some you know income-producing real estate where you're building a portfolio. That's, I think, the smartest thing to do with that income. Well, I, you know, I agree with you from, from the standpoint that if you see it as a business, then that's fine. Just treat it as a business. Don't look at flipping as, as investing. It's no more investing than consulting is investing. It's not. It's, it's, it's a business and, and just treat it that way. That's fine. And if you want to, and, and what you, if what you want to do is take that 30,000, to me, you got a choice. You can put it back into the business. Okay. And, and buy more properties to flip more properties. And that's, that's one road to go. The other is take, take that money and go put it and buy and hold. I don't think one's right and one's wrong. I think that there are certain people that if they have a, a, a really good business of buying and, and, and turning over properties and improving them and flipping them, that's great. That's your business. Okay. If you have a, if on the other hand, you're an investor and you buy to hold your properties, that's great. That that's, but it's, but you're absolutely right. One's a business, one's investing. Yep, exactly. So we're talking about real estate being a business. We're talking about holding property. Um, we're talking about transactions. All these things play into entities. And there's a lot of promoters out there and even attorneys that sometimes are giving bad advice or misinformation on tax-saving entities. And I, it took me years to figure this out because I heard all this information and misinformation 
And I didn't know when to use an LLC versus an S corp versus this and that. I finally have figured it out as of, you know, recent years on what the best entity is. But again, this is a big, big topic. And and you can just give me your two minute version of entities and what investors should use or maybe not use from, from a tax perspective when it comes to their real estate. Well, it, it actually goes back to the conversation we were just having. Okay. So certain entities are good for investing and certain entities are good for business. So if you're, if what you're doing is a business, you're, um, most people will end up being taxed as an S corporation. Okay. If what you're doing is investing, most people will not want to be an S corporation because there's some big downsides to being an S corporation if you're an investor. Right. Okay. So instead what you want to do is be taxed either as a sole proprietor or as a partnership. Um, but you do use the term LLC, which is, of course, limited liability company. And in most cases, in most for most people that will want to use a limited liability company either way. Okay, so a limited liability company, just to be clear, is not a tax designation. It is a state law designation. So you can have a limited liability company that is taxed as an S corporation. You can have a limited liability company that is taxed as a partnership. You can have a limited liability company that's taxed as a C corporation or that's taxed as a sole proprietorship. Okay. Um, you can have a limited liability company. One limited liability company might be taxed as a general partnership and another one taxed as a limited partnership. So there's a lot of different tax designations. The reason people like limited liability companies is for the limited liability. It's for it's it's to protect your assets. So that's an that's a legal question. That's something you ought to be talking to your attorney about is how do I protect my assets? What you want to talk to your accountant about is how do I protect not my assets from a, a um, somebody who's going to sue me, but how do I pr- protect my assets from the government? That's called tax protection, right? And that's a function of how's it taxed. Right. So um, th- that that's a really difficult distinction for people to understand, um, but a very important one. When I talk about an S corporation, I say, well, you should be an S corporation for tax purposes. I'm not saying you should be a corporation. I'm saying you should probably be a limited liability company taxed as an S corporation because for LLCs, we get to choose how we're taxed. So I may want it for asset protection, but still get to use it for tax purposes. But the basic, the fundamental difference is, is that I don't want to be taxed as a corporate. I don't want real estate that's investment real estate, not flipping, okay? But investment real estate, I do not want it in taxed in a corporate form. So I don't want to tax as a S corporation or a C corporation, okay? That's bad. If, if your advisor is telling you to do that, run away, okay? Go get another advisor because investment investment property should almost without exception, and I just say almost because there's always the exception out there, almost without exception, be in an entity that's taxed either as a sole proprietorship or as a partnership. Yeah. There's always two sides to this question when it comes to entities. There's the, there's the tax side and the legal side, and they do go hand in hand. You do want the protection from an asset protection perspective, right. but you always have to ask the question, how are the taxes going to get treated on that? Is it going to be flow through to my personal tax return? Um, is it going to be double taxed? I mean, you right. know, you, you really have to look at both of these things. So, you know, I, I like S corporations for one particular reason when it comes to transactional businesses. Right. I like LLCs for the asset protection and have it as 
a disregarded entity with the IRS, so things flow through, and then I just report it on another tax return at the end of the year, and I don't have to file a tax return for that LLC. I mean, it can be simple. It can. Now, I will just, here's a little hint for our listeners, and that is that um, a, a partnership is going to have much less chance of being audited than if you report it on your Schedule E. Okay, so um, I, I do like uh, investment property being held in an LLC that's going to be taxed as a partnership. I think there's some, uh, I actually think there's some pretty significant advantages. And let me, let me explain. Husband and wife, that's a partnership. So you, you don't have to have, you don't have to go outside of your family. Okay. I'm not suggesting you have an outside owner. I'm just suggesting that there are some, I think there's some real advantages um, uh, to being taxed as a partnership and it's worth the little amount of money that it costs to file a tax return for it. You end up with a balance sheet. You end up with better reporting. Yeah, you end up with a less chance of an audit. You end up with better tax consequences. I think there are a lot of advantages to that. I, I, I'm not a big fan of the disregarded entity um, for um, at least for the holding company, you know, and yeah. we can do that another time talking about holding companies. But, um, but, but the, but the, your choice of entity, by the way, when, when we do a tax strategy, it takes us typically three months to, to, to uh, get somebody's taxes down by, um, by 10 to 40 percent. But when we do that, I'll tell you about 50 percent of your tax savings comes from your choice of entity. That's a huge difference. 10 to 40 percent is a massive difference. If, I mean, if you think about that as a rate of return, yeah. you know, that, where are you going to get rates of return you know, up to 40 percent? It, it, it's a tax-free rate of return too, because you're reducing your taxes and you didn't get a deduction for those taxes. So, no, I we, our, our goal as a as a CPA firm is that we are the best investment anybody ever makes. That's our goal. Right, you need the right team. There's no question. Here, right. Here's a softball question for you, um, and, and I, I know this is kind of a sore spot for a lot of people. You know, when it comes to um, you know 401ks and IRAs, you have no control. You lose advantages of, of debt and taxes, and a lot of people don't understand that. So I'm going to throw this over to you and just ask you this softball question. You know, what do you think of 401ks and IRAs as a tax-advantaged vehicle? Um, so I'm going to surprise you a little bit. They, they have their place, not for your listeners, but they have their place. Um, as far as for real estate, bad idea, bad idea. Two things happen when if you invest in real estate through your IRA. One is you lose all the depreciation deductions. You never get them. I don't care if you're a Roth IRA. I don't care. You lose your depreciation. You will never get that back. Okay. Number two is you lose your leverage, and that's a bigger issue actually than even the tax consequence um, because. Uh, Banks as general rule, you, you cannot guarantee that loan. If, if you invest, let's take, take your IRA money and you invest in real estate, you cannot guarantee that loan. That's a prohibited transaction. It will blow your whole IRA. It, it has to be non-recourse. It has to be non-recourse. Well, banks don't like non-recourse loans on residential property and are on smaller properties. <clears throat> so they require you to to sign on that dotted line in order for you, you know, and and you you've got to sign personally for them to lend you the money so they don't so uh, what you end up with is instead of an 80% loan to value you're probably ending up with a 50% loan to value well think of that 
That means that if you have $100,000, think about how big this is. $100,000 to invest, if you do it inside your IRA, you can only buy $200,000 of property. But if you did it outside your IRA, you could buy $500,000. Now let's say that what you did instead was you actually pulled the money out. I've, I've run these numbers 100 times. You pulled the money out. Let's say you had to pay taxes and penalties. So you actually went from 100000 you paid taxes and penalties, you're down to 50000 that fifty thousand will still you get you two hundred fifty thousand dollars of property, which is more than the two hundred thousand you get inside the IRA. And don't and and here's another thing, don't think that oh, but I now I have more equity in my property. No, I don't, because here's what happens: you pay, take that hundred thousand and you buy a two hundred thousand dollar property. You have a hundred thousand dollars of equity, right? But when you pull that money out, you're going to pay tax on two hundred thousand dollars. Right. Okay. So you're still going to give up. You, you got to pay off your bank, right? And you got to pay your taxes. So here's what's going to happen. You, 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 you pay off your bank. Now you're down to 100000 You pull the money out. You got 50000 left. So you're in the same place. Only the difference is, is that now you haven't been able to leverage over the years. Whereas, frankly, I tell people, if, what you're, if your wealth strategy is to do investment real estate, why would you ever do it in an IRA? Pull the money out, pay the tax, pay the penalty. Don't worry about it. You're done. Now you have control over it. Now you can go invest. And it is a very rare situation that I would ever see anybody, even if they're investing through a partnership, invest um, through their IRA. I mean, it just makes no sense. And anybody who, any, any CPA, by the way, who does a lot of, um, have clients with a lot of real estate, they will always, they will always tell you, just never do it inside an IRA. Um, like I said, I mean, if, if you're going to invest in, in um, the stock market and you're going to do that long-term buy a hold and you get a 100% match by your, by your uh, employer and you're not going to pay attention to your money anyway, so you, you're just going to put in a mutual fund or an ETF or whatever, go for it. You know, I actually think sometimes the numbers work out there. Yeah. But but the reality is if, if you're going to be an active investor, take control of your life, you're actually going to go out and take advantage of the tax laws as they exist, then you would just never do it through an IRA or 401k. Have you actually ever advised a client to pull funds out of their 401k or IRA and use it in real estate if that's what they wanted to do? Of course. Do it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, you're the first guy to actually admit it. That's good. Um, all right. So we talk a lot about strategy, uh, you know, just kind of in wrapping things up here for today. Um, what would you advise investors, real estate investors specifically, what would you tell them to do in terms of a starting place to start working on their quote unquote tax-free wealth strategy? Where, where, where does one begin? Or maybe if they're already a seasoned investor, they have a small portfolio. What's the next step? Uh, I, I got to tell you, um, there, 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 uh, there was a book years ago. I, I don't subscribe to a lot of things in this book, but um, it was a very, it's a New York Times bestseller called The Millionaire Next, Millionaire Next Door. I've read that. And the one thing that I really like about that book is that the, the author was absolutely right when he said the most important person in your life from an investment standpoint will be your tax advisor. He's absolutely right. Because like you say, taxes are the biggest, our biggest single expense, right? So you must find 
the right tax advisor. You must find somebody who understands the law and more importantly, understands your situation. What drives me crazy is when uh, I'll hear uh, uh, somebody in a class I'm teaching or a seminar I'm doing and, and they'll say, well, my, my, my CPA never asked me any questions. I'm going, well, then why do you have them for your CPA? I mean, the, 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 one of the rules about uh, taxes is if you want to change your tax, you have to change your facts. Yeah. Right? So um, anything could be deductible, for example. Almost all expenses can be deductible under the right facts and circumstances. So I've got to understand, as your tax advisor, I have to understand what your your situation is and what your future situation is going to be. I have to have crystal ball. I have to be looking at all aspects of your life in order to understand how do I reduce your tax. If I'm not asking you those questions, I'm not doing my job. What I always tell people is the, the, the job of an advisor is not to give answers. The job of an advisor is to ask questions. You think about the last time you went to see a doctor. What was the most important thing they did? They diagnosed your illness, didn't they? That's right. And they asked you a bunch of questions. They could ne- They didn't say, oh, here, go take this pill. I don't know what's wrong with you, but go take this pill. <laughs> they would lose their license over that. And yet, what do we have? We have financial advisors, tax advisors, legal advisors, all the time going in there and saying, here, go do this, without asking the questions. The the, the the reality is, just like with the doctor, you have all the answers. You know where it hurts. You know what it feels like. All he can do is interpret your answers to say, okay, then here's what we need to do. Well, the same thing is true, and if he's not asking the right questions, it's not going to help you, right? The same thing is true with the tax advisor. If they're not asking you the right questions, they can't diagnose the problem, and they can't give you a good answer. So, it, it's it's really a function of the questions, not the answers when it comes to, I think, any advisor and more particularly a tax advisor than anybody else. I was going to ask you the question on how you go about finding the right tax advisor, but I think you've answered that question. It's someone who actually listens to your situation and asks questions to figure out where you are and where you need to go. It is. You want somebody who's diagnosing your situation. I mean, that's I mean, when we when we work with a client to uh, create a tax strategy, we're diagnosing their situation. We're going, okay, so where are you today? Where are you going to go? Okay, based on on that picture, what is it we need to do? But until we diagnose the situation to give you any kind of advice or any kind of ideas whatsoever is beyond general education, like we've done on this program. It, it, anytime you go beyond general education, then I, I think you're into you know, a a pretty scary area. Yeah. You know, thinking back about uh, what our investment counselors do, they do the exact same thing. Nobody ever calls us saying, look, I'm looking to buy real estate and build a portfolio. And then the first thing we say, well, you know, purchase three properties in Indianapolis. You know, we always start off, what are your goals? What's your strategy? And what's your criteria? That's right. If we don't understand that, we can't make any recommendations. Right. So that makes sense. I want to make a comment about that book. I read it many, many years ago. I actually thoroughly enjoyed that book. I think another problem with that book today is that a lot of those people that were uh, case studies within that book accumulated their wealth through savings. I mean, they were investors yep. too. But right. but savings doesn't work today because the currency is being debased right. so much that, you know, as Robert Kiyosaki says, savers are losers. Right. You just can't, you can't save yourself to wealth anymore. You have to invest. Right. That's right. Yeah. And you used to be able to, I mean, and, and Robert make, make, makes a point of that is that 
prior to 1973, prior to going off the gold standard, you could. You could actually save yourself to wealth. And that's where the millionaire next the millionaire next door came from is the idea of you could do it back then. You cannot do it anymore. No. You can leverage your way to wealth. You can you can reduce your taxes to wealth. Um, you, you know, you, but you have to do something different. Yep. No, totally agree. Uh, is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we wrap up or something I didn't ask you that maybe I should have? Well, you know, I mean, like you said at the beginning, I mean, we go for hours and hours <laughs> and hours and it's, I, I hope it's clear by now that I can go for days on this stuff. Um, I, I think there's, there's so much to learn. I mean, what I love about the tax law, I like that there's two and a half million words in the tax law. It means that there's two and a half million opportunities to use the tax law to my benefit. It, it means that there's so much that you can take advantage of. And the key is understanding that. So I applaud you for, um, you know, for doing the show. I, I applaud you for, for the, you know, the, the right kind of, of, um, financial education. Um, there's a lot of bad financial education out there. So I want to thank you for that. And, uh, for, uh, you know, and I just want to encourage you, you know, keep it up. Well, thanks, Tom. No, I appreciate that. And I personally know people who use uh, ProVision, your company, uh, for their tax strategy and tax advice. So I guess in closing, tell our listeners how they can find you and your company about your book, um, the websites that you have, so they can uh, get more information and look into their own personal situation with your company. Sure, absolutely. Just go to taxfreewealthadvisor.com. That's the easy one to remember because mm-hmm. that's the name of the book, taxfreewealthadvisor.com. You can also call um, our office, uh, the phone number is 866-467-5809, 866-467-5809. But, um, and, and the book, of course, it's on, you know, Amazon. I mean, anywhere you can get an ebook, there, there's ebooks, there's, there's paper copies, there's, um, we have an uh, audio books. I, I, I read it myself for 15 hours. I read that book, um, <laughs> to get it onto an audio book. And so you want to hear my voice for, 15 hours. That's fine. You know, do the audio book, but, uh, it's, um, uh, I love it when people read the book because the whole point of the book, um, is to change your context and your thought process. Um, I wanted to be very consistent with, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a rich dad advisor book. So, um, and as you know, and many of the listeners know Robert's one of my clients and, and, uh, want to be consistent. He's all about context. Change the way you think about something, it'll change the way you behave. And if you can change the way you think about taxes, it'll change the way you can behave about taxes, and then you can make that serious reduction in your taxes at that point. One of the biggest things we hear about Rich Dad, Poor Dad, the book from people is that it changed the way they think. It changed yep. their context. And that's a huge thing. Um, the one thing I will say about your book is that it does change your context. When I read it, it just made everything so easy to understand and so simple. Good. You know, it's the analogy of, of the glass and pouring water in the glass. It, it gave you the shape of the glass. Now, when you start pouring the water in, which is the content about taxes, you know exactly where it fits and how it relates to everything else. And so that's the most powerful thing about the book. That, that was the intent. So it looks, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. So if nothing else, if people don't even contact you or your company, at least read the book because it'll right. just help you understand something that you're going to spend more money on in your lifetime than virtually everything else. Sure. Read the book. Have your tax advisor read the book. 
you know, make sure they're, they're not fighting you over the book. Um, <laughs> ha- seriously, having advisors that share your context and your values is really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tom, you are a wealth of information and knowledge. So I really appreciate you spending the hour here today. And uh, we certainly would look forward to having you again later this year as a guest. Uh, happy to do so. And uh, thanks for having me. Thanks, Tom. Are you having a hard time finding great investment properties? Unfortunately, the best deals are rarely found locally. Successful investing begins with the right properties in the right markets. Norada Real Estate provides everything you need to invest in the best deals across the U.S. Our simple, proven system will help you create real wealth and passive monthly cash flow. Get your free copy of the ultimate guide to passive real estate investing at noradarealestate.com slash guide. That's N-O-R-A-D-A realestate.com slash guide. Nothing on this show should be considered specific personal or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate legal, tax, real estate, or business professional for individualized advice. For distribution or publication rights and media interviews, please contact the host.